Welcome to the Keys of the Kingdom with Brother Gregory of His Holy Church. Well, welcome to Keys of the Kingdom. I'm Brother Gregory. And we're going to talk about the kingdom of God and uh, those keys of the kingdom, those mysterious keys of the kingdom that were uh, supposedly given to us uh, or given to somebody, uh, at least according to the text. So we've, we've been going through Matthew and uh, we're, we've gone all the way through Matthew 16 and uh, we're creating a study that uh, you can go to preparingyou.com and follow right along. You can hear us on uh, the podcast. You can hear us on the radio broadcast when we go out live like we are today. And uh, in the news today, just before the show started, I saw that they were talking about Social Security, that we need to be doing something about it. And, and they mentioned privatizing Social Security. And what does that mean? And what does that look like? Well, you know, just watching the news for the last few years, of course, I've been watching the news for the last half century and more. Uh, I can remember when Eisenhower was running for election. <laughs> so I, I'm getting up there. Uh, and uh, the media doesn't always tell you the truth. The government doesn't always tell you the truth. So whatever they're offering you now is probably not going to include a great deal of the truth. Uh, but anyway, it was in the news that they need to do something about it. Of course, we've known that for years. We've talked about that for years. And to understand what you should do about it is actually contained in Matthew. And so understanding Matthew is really important. As a matter of fact, it's also uh, it is included in uh, Mark and Luke and John and all the epistles. And if we're really going to go into it in depth, we're going to see that the solution for Social Security goes all the way back to Abraham (laughs) and uh, Moses because they had the solution to Social Security. The problem is is that uh, Social Security is not going to look exactly like it does now. It's not going to certainly not going to look like it did at the time of FDR when he implemented Social Security. And uh, we're going to have to take a new look at things like Social Security. And we're going to have to take a new look at things like politics. Things like history. Uh, because we're supposed to be learning from history so that we don't repeat it. Because the Social Security system in Rome failed. The Social Security system in Judea failed. Uh, the, 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 they were run through temples. The social security systems were run through temples. And some of those temples, there was, there were thieves and robbers in those temples, embezzling uh, the source of the funds for those temples. Uh, they, of course, they backed it with gold in, at the time of Christ, but this they were getting away from that. And it was difficult to tell exactly how they were backing their systems with gold, uh, because they had different ways of accounting. And of course, in all the, uh, temples, there were, there were treasuries, there were vaults. I mean, the most secure vault in all the Mediterranean was in the, uh, on, at Ephesus in the Temple of Diana. 
And uh, they minted coin. And they put that coin in the vault. And they had to have a lot of bone ash in order to mint that coin because they had a, a way of decreasing and increasing the amount of gold in each coin. They could regulate the amount of gold in each coin. They could also do this with silver. And we saw them do that with uh, Anthony and Cleopatra. They reduced the silver denarii by 10%. There wasn't as much silver in the denarii when Anthony and Cleopatra made them. And of course, where did they make these things? Well, they often made them in, in temples, like the Temple of Moneta, which is where we get the, the, the name, money. We get it from the Temple of Moneta, which was a government building that minted coin for Romans. <laughs> if you don't know that, if you think a pagan temple meant that there were, you know, pagan belly dancers dancing around and and doing strange rituals in it and and bizarre pagan practices, uh, well, you probably don't know what was going on in the temples, what they were actually doing, why they needed so many scribes, which are like accountants. Uh, or attorneys, and sometimes both accountants and attorneys, they had them in the temple because they had to count the money (laughs) that they were storing in the temple. Of course, if we go back to Moses, he said, don't do that. If we go to Jesus Christ, he said, don't do that because thieves and robbers can break in and steal. Moths. I don't know exactly how moths would eat up gold Maybe it has something to do with that bone ash that I mentioned earlier. (laughs) Of course, if you've listened to our shows on a regular basis, you know why bone ash was so important in the Temple of Ephesus. If you read our books that are free online, you would know why bone ash was so important. They, You have archaeologists thinking, well, we found all this bone ash at the Temple of Ephesus. Well, that's evidence that they were sacrificing animals. Well, of course, if you sacrifice an animal, you don't just end up with bone ash. You end up with all kinds of ash. But they specifically were finding where they burnt bones up. Why did they need to burn those bones up to get that bone ash? And what what were they doing with that bone ash? Well, actually, in, in the... In the book where we write about, and the article where we write about Ephesus and what they were actually doing there, we said it was not evidence of pagan rituals of burning animals. It's evidence of a crime. <laughs> it's kind of like Twitter. It's a crime scene because they were secretly deleting the amount of gold that was in the golden coins they used for money. That's what they were doing. And they needed bone ash in order to delete that gold. Of course, we don't need that anymore. Of course, we don't have any more gold. <laughs> they took uh, gold. You go back to 1930s with HR 192 and they made it illegal for U.S. citizens to own gold. They actually confiscated gold coins from American citizens, not a lot because they 
they, they might have got a rebellion and people figured out what they were doing. But nobody knew what they were doing. Not very many people knew what they were doing. And, of course, the media is not going to tell you because the media was controlled even back then. I admit it's it, it's controlled a lot more now. But it was controlled about then. You have to remember by the 30s, they'd already spent over 25 years changing the way in which Americans viewed history, which you can find out about by reading our article at preparing you on schools as tools. It also comes out in a pamphlet that you can get download for free. But yeah, they were changing the way you looked at history. And then I remember back a number of years ago, talking with somebody at a local public school who I was helping him fix his roof. And he was saying he thought it was so wonderful they removed history class from public education. He thought that was great. Because why do we care what the Romans were doing? (laughs) Well, I will admit he was the maintenance guy at the school. But uh, the reality is they did remove the history books from public school. And they came back with a new history. But, of course, nobody hardly noticed the difference. Because by that time, they'd already spent 50 years changing the way in which Americans viewed history. So along comes us out here at uh, preparing you and uh, His Holy Church, and uh, and we're trying to change you back so you know history again. <laughs> but in order to do that, you have to let go of what you pro- previously believed is the story of your history and the story of your Bible. And the story of Christ. And and it's not true what they taught you. I mean, some's true. There's always, if you want to make up a good lie, you want to put a lot of truth into it. You know, so that fact checkers can say, well, that's true, and that's true, and that's true. But they won't tell you, but this over here is not only not true... They didn't even mention this over here. (laughs) And it gives you a distorted view of what was really going on. And so that's what we've been trying to do as we go through, uh, you know, Matthew. And talked about in Matthew 16, the Pharisees and the Sadducees demanded a sign. And uh, and what the leaven of the Pharisees and the Sadducees was. Because leaven... If we go all the way back to Genesis and, and Exodus, where we talk about and explain leaven, we have an article up on why why they had to get the leaven out of there, you know, during these festivals. Well, it it wasn't about yeast. It wasn't about yeast when Jesus said it. It wasn't about yeast when Moses said it. But if you if you've been deceived, which they talk about all the time in the New Testament, uh, then maybe you were deceived about the leaven. And so you just go to those articles and, and we'll show you. We'll show you what what Moses said. You know, I mean like baptism. Baptism's really important to a lot of Christians. Especially baptism with water that has to take place in a certain place, in a certain ritual. But John the Baptist, who is really kind of the baptizer, 
says that I only baptize you with water. There's one who comes after me who will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. So, that's interesting. Baptizing with the Holy Spirit. How is, how is that done? And how do you know that you are baptized with the Holy Spirit and not some other spirit? It's kind of like the name thing. You, you do things in the name of Jesus or the name of Yeshua or the name of Yahweh or the name of Jehovah. But we know that the letter killeth. Only the Spirit giveth life and the Holy Ghost is the Holy Spirit. So it's really not about spelling either. Which, you know, I'm very thankful of because I'm so dyslexic. <laughs> so it's not about spelling It's about spirit. And the keys of the kingdom are really about spirit as well. And yet, there is some physical evidence as to what the keys of the kingdom are. You know, Jesus, and that's when he gives us the keys of the kingdom, he explains right there in in Matthew... In, in Matthew 16, what those keys of the kingdom are. He tells you, you know, that it has to do with what you bind on earth. And what you loose on earth is also bound in heaven, bound in spiritual realms, and loose in spiritual realms. And of course, when we're set free in spiritual realms, we can now approach the tree of life, the Holy Spirit, the divine revelation of God. We come, we're drawn near to God. Because the Corbin of the Pharisees, Corbin comes from a word that means to draw near. But the Corbin of the Pharisees was making the word of God did not affect. So it was removing you farther and farther away from the Spirit of God. From the tree of life. From paradise. All these metaphors that we see used in the text. We were getting farther and farther away because of the Corbin of the Pharisees. And so that's, that's kind of fascinating. Like, how was the Corbin of the Pharisees taking us farther and farther away from God? From the kingdom of God? The kingdom of heaven? How is it doing that? Well, it's really very simple. Now we can explain it, and we have, and we will continue to explain it as long as God gives us breath to do so. But what is a shocker, which we should put in this little section of the show today, is that the Corbin of the Pharisees, which was set up by the Pharisees and Herod, and with the cooperation of the Sadducees, Corbin, that was making the word of God to none effect, was identical to the Social Security system set up by Franklin Delano Roosevelt. And so we, we've written a book about it. And, and of course the guy who devised the plan wrote a book about it and we quote that guy in the book. Who says it's, it wasn't insurance. It was sold as if it was insurance, but it wasn't insurance. It was something else. 
And if you don't know what that is, well, take hope. Because we've got it explained. <laughs> in, in, in written books, in written articles, and audios. And you can go and look it up for yourself. That Social Security is identical. The Social Security system in the United States. The Social Security system in Australia. Social Security system in England. Social Security system in France. And and, and pretty much in Sweden, at least at, at the beginning. Now, Sweden has privatized what they call privatized. I'm holding up. I'm giving you air quotes. Privatized, to some degree, their social welfare system. And so they think that they're not really a socialist nation. Denmark said the same thing. Yet, they still have many of the same elements that are found in the Communist Manifesto as law in their own country. Just as a rough example is that it's illegal to home teach your children in Sweden. It's illegal to home teach your children in Germany. You can't teach your kids at home in Germany. It's been that way since Hitler made it that way. So, Hitler lost the war, but it's still illegal to homeschool your children. In Germany and many other countries. And they would like to make it illegal in, in in your country. But even if you were to homeschool your children, do you know what to teach them? Because, you see, before they tried to dumb down your children in public education and even in private education. I only went to private schools. I never went to public schools. For education, anyway. I've been in public schools. <laughs> but but uh, uh, they, they before they dumb down your children, they dumb down your parents. Because, and, and you read the article, Schools as Tools, that there were men, not everybody, there were men who were planning to change the way in which your parents and your grandparents viewed history. And, of course, there were people that were trying to change the way in which your parents and your grandparents and your great-great-great-great-grandparents viewed the Bible. Because the Bible is about history. So this spirit of altering our view of history, you can't alter history. History is, it's, it's written in history. <laughs> but they can alter your view of it. And if they alter your view of it, you won't learn from it. And you won't know what they're planning next. Because their spirit is continuing down that same broad way to destruction. But there's a narrow way, a straight way, to eternal life. And unfortunately, most churches aren't really teaching it. They mention eternal life, and they mention being saved, and they mention redemption. But when you really hold the light up to the scriptures, and what they're really trying to tell us, you'll find out that many who think they're coming in the name of the Lord, have been cunningly deceived to believe a strong delusion. 
and that while they are saying Lord, Lord in their churches, you know, and praising God and praising Jesus in their churches, singing songs to Jesus, and getting very emotional about it, feeling very strongly that they love Jesus. They're actually, according to Jesus, many of them are actually workers of iniquity. That they actually are engaged in covetous practices. They are actually pursuing and trying to save the Corbin of the Pharisees that is making the word of God to none effect, moving them farther and farther away from what James calls the father of light. And they're moving into darkness where they don't know what is true. Wycliffe writes, or at least somebody wrote in the foreword of the Wycliffe Bible, one of the early translations of the Bible. People talk about the Geneva Bible. Well, Wycliffe Bible says that the, in the foreword that this is the book for the government of the people, for the people, and by the people. Because Moses was returning the power of government to the people. Abraham was doing the same thing with his altars of clay and stone and Moses' altars of clay and stone. These were systems, just like those pagan temples were a part of a system. The altars were a part of a system of social welfare that took care of the needy in a daily ministration through the practice of pure religion, which is unspotted by the systems the pagan systems of the Temple of Mineta, of the Temple of Ephesus, which is also called the Temple of Diana, which was minting coins and was the underwriter, the insurance underwriter for 127 different countries that built it, that, that paid into it to back their own local social welfare systems in those 127 different countries. You didn't know that. Nobody told you that. It's just a matter of history. It's not a secret. Just because somebody doesn't tell you something, it's not a secret. They didn't tell you. They didn't mention it to you. So anyway, we're we're uncovering these all these bits and pieces. Matthew's talking about many of these things. But if you don't have the context in which Matthew is writing about the wrath of the Lamb. What's the wrath of the Lamb? Are lambs wrathful? What's the song of the Lamb? What's the song of Moses? And they seem to be somehow in harmony, and we'll see that in as we go through Matthew 17. Because we have these events that take place, this transfiguration. Uh, what What is this all about? Where Jesus shines with light. And like I said, James calls God the Father of light. This way and the truth and the light, they, they're, they're connected. And so we're going to find out about all that today on Keys of the Kingdom. 
but we'll have to do it when we come back from the break. After this brief break, we'll be right back and start right with Matthew 17. So welcome back to Keys of the Kingdom. And we're looking at Matthew 17. And Matthew talks about this strange event called the Transfiguration where there was a there was light as the sun, uh, where things were glowing. And, of course, we can go back to Genesis. Uh, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. I mean, they're trying to tell us something in that original statement there in Genesis, explaining it to lots of people in terms that they can understand. Heaven, that's the sky above. And uh, earth. That's where we're walking around. And in the beginning, that was way back at whatever the beginning is, the beginning of the first click of the talk, uh, the talk of the clock. In the beginning, God created it. The heavens and the earth. And, and he goes on to say, and the earth was without form and, and void. It seemed to be empty. There was darkness was upon the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God moved upon the face of the waters. Moved. Movement. And God said, God spoke. There's actual Hebrew words there. We're looking at the English. God spoke. The first thing he said was, let there be light. And there was light. And God saw the light. That it was good. And God divided the light from the darkness. And God called the light day and the darkness called night. So there's, there's a message in that. That if God is the father of light, the creator of light, the originator of light... And the way and the truth and the light are life. Life and light are often uh, almost synonyms in in the text. And we can go through all kinds of verses and look at that. But uh, just trying to put it into a perspective so that when we start to read here at the beginning of Matthew 17, and he says in verse 1, And after six days... Jesus taketh Peter, James, and John, his brother. He didn't say his brothers. John, his brother, and bringeth them up into a mountain apart. Apart from what? Apart from the others. And was transfigured before them, and his face did shine as the sun... And his raiment was white as the light. Now, we go back to the days of Moses. Moses had gone up on the mountain and he talked to Yahweh. And and, the, and somebody in the pillar of fire, you know, he turned sideways and he talked to somebody there. And relayed that messages that he got down to the people. But one of the times when he came down from the mountain, his face shined so much that 
people found it difficult to even look at him. And they had to put a cloth over his head because they found it difficult to look at him. And, and of course, when Moses wanted to see God, God said, no, you just got to stay, stay in this crevice, in this cleft in the rock. And when I walk by, you just kind of look at me from behind because you can't, you can't really see me. It's too bright. It's, it's too much light. You can't receive it. We're finite creatures. Now exactly, you know, now you're drawing all kinds of pictures in your mind as to what that looks like. But that's your imagination to some degree. I mean, we can't imagine that which we cannot see. We, we, We can't create God in our own minds. Whatever this force is that created heaven and earth. We can't, we can't fathom that in our finite minds. So we make references to it. We use words like Elohim. That's the word we see there in Genesis at the beginning. God, Elohim. Which, you know, is Elif, Lamad, He, Yad, Mem. All these letters have meanings. And we put them all together. And we come up with this word Elohim, which isn't always spelled that way. Sometimes they add more letters. Sometimes they take letters away. But... It it actually is defined right in your concordance as rulers or judges. That's what Elohim means. But in the beginning when they're saying God, it wasn't rulers and judges. It was some force that is the ruler and judge of the universe. That is setting in motion not only, you know, the the, the waters that were void and dark, but it was setting in motion all creation. And therefore, the law of nature, right reason, it are words and phrases that we use to describe what this God of creation put into motion. Now, almost every culture believes that there is some sort of God. There's a lot of people running around today that say they're atheists. They don't believe in God. But a lot of them believed in Social Security <laughs> and the gods of this world because that's another word we see. It's often Elohim, but it's translated small g-o-d-s, gods. And those gods are many, according to Paul. And they they think of themselves as God. And of course, we've we've got an article up, the Son of God. Jesus is called the Son of God. Most of the people who believe that Jesus was called the Son of God have no understanding that at that time, if you went up to the average guy on the streets of Rome or even the streets of Judea and you asked them, who is the Son of God? Or the streets of Ephesus. Or the streets of Corinth. Who is the son of God? They would tell you. Caesar. Caesar's the son of God. It was a common phrase. In reference to Caesar. As a matter of fact. When you. Romans had to pay their taxes at the temple. And they would commemorate that event. By buying a little incense. Also at the temple. And burning it. And professing that Caesar was the son of God. They did that regularly. 
They all knew that. That was common knowledge. That that's what was going on at the temples. As well as you could go to the little building on the side of the temple and get free bread. And sometimes free cheese. Sometimes free wine. Sometimes free money. You just had to belong to that temple. You had to have membership with that temple. Rome had lots of those temples. Ephesus had one. And, uh, well, they had several actually, but they, the main Ephesus temple wasn't just for the common man. All the people in Ephesus, they went there. It could sit, you know, thousands of people could seat themselves in the temple, not not in the vault, not in that most secure vault, but they could get in there and they could have meetings and decide things. And there was evidently some form board of directors, but they weren't allowed in the vault. That was the most secure vault in all the Mediterranean. And it was heavily guarded because it had a function of providing social welfare for the people of Ephesus. And to underwrite the social welfare for the people of 127 different countries in the Roman Empire. But they, they had to have accounters going in there and counting. <laughs> of course, one of the ways they secured the, the gold in some of these temples, one of the common practices is that they would make a big golden statue inside the temple. And you could go in and you could you could peek and you could see the statue and you say, yep, it's still there. <laughs> it, it, it's okay. Pericles in Athens, during one of the wars, he actually went into the, the temple where they had the big golden statue. That's not the only gold they had, but that was you know, their reserve fund. They actually called it that in the Greek language, the reserve fund. And he actually went in and sawed off some of the statue. <laughs> had it melted down to make uh, gold coins so that they could buy some of the equipment for their navy. Because if they lost the war, they lost everything. But if you don't understand this, you won't even know what the golden calf is all about. You don't know what the temple's all about. You don't know what the church is all about. And in these next two chapters, 17 and 18, we're going to take a hard look at what is the church and what is not the church, and what the function of the church was, and what the function of the church was not. That's going to be challenging for a lot of people. But we're starting off with this mysterious transfiguration. And behold, there appeared unto them Moses and Elias, which is Elijah, talking with him, with Jesus, whose face is shining like the sun, and raiments are white as the light itself. Then answered Peter and said unto Jesus, Lord, it is good for us to be here. If thou wilt let us make here three tabernacles, three tents, one for thee, one for Moses, and one for Elias. And this is Peter again. We'll see this regularly. Peter speaking up first. And obviously, not always with the best idea. <laughs> but, but he's outspoken. 
And uh, because if it was really a good idea, Jesus would say, yeah, let's do that. But no, he didn't. He didn't say do that. But in verse 5 it says, While he yet spake, behold, a bright cloud overshadowed them. So something he's calling a cloud, very bright, overshadows them. And behold, a voice out of the cloud, which said, This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. Hear ye him. Listen to him. Hear his voice. That's what he's telling them. And when the disciples heard it, because they actually heard this voice, they fell on their face and were sore afraid. Remember back in Genesis and and, and Exodus when, well, specifically in Exodus when there was this thing up on the mountain and this pillar of fire and you know, it looked like fire in the day, at nighttime, but at, in the daytime they call it a pillar of smoke. That there was this like voice, and some heard it as a voice, and some heard it as thunder, but a lot of people were just afraid. And they said, Moses, you go and come back and tell us. We'll listen to you, but we can't, we can't hear this. This is too frightening. It's just like the, the light. From this thing is too bright. Now, you know, if you're already an atheist, you're going to say, oh, that's just a bunch of ridiculous. I don't even want to hear the Bible. And, you know, well, you know, I'm willing to hear all kinds of things in order to determine what is true and what is not. And because, you know, that's, that's information what you hear. Now, I remember once when I was a little kid, I used to like to watch old movies. Didn't get to see a lot of them, but, uh, I, they were coming on to the TV. That was the first thing that was on TV is old movies. <laughs> and uh, uh, my brother says, why do you watch those old movies? Because it's not real. And I said, well, I like it because it's what people think is real. You know, it's a story. The movies are stories. People are telling you something and, and they're acting it out and you know they got special effects and you know not a lot back then but uh, they're telling you what they think in story form and of course that's what the Bible is often and that's what we see Jesus doing all the time with his parables he's telling us what he thinks in story form and they, Matthew includes this transfiguration scene in his gospel and is, is telling us what they're seeing and what's going on. But they're, they're so afraid when they hear this voice from this thing, this cloud. And of course, you know, the thing that was over Israel when they were traveling through the desert was also called a cloud. And of course, Jesus goes up in a cloud. And so, yeah, I don't know exactly what this cloud looks like. I mean, artists will, you know, they will, you know, paint in a lot of smoke, smoky looking clouds. And that may be accurate. But it just doesn't tell us. Something they call a cloud that is very bright, and there's a voice coming out of it, appears over them, and it scares them to fall down on their face. Because they were sore 
afraid. That's what the English says. Sore afraid. In verse 17 it says, And Jesus came and touched them and said, Arise and be not afraid. Another one of those, Jesus says, Fear not, be not afraid. 360 times, according to somebody told me that. Once for almost maybe 365 times. I don't remember exactly what they said. (laughs) And I thought, well, that's like he told us that one for every day. So there are no days that we should be afraid. We should be a respecter of God. A respecter of this power of creation. Whatever it is that brought all this about. All this life about. We should respect that. We we can't even see it. We can't even look at it. We can't even understand exactly what it is. But it's impressive. And we should be a respecter of that. And I, I do not say that idly. There's a reason why we're saying it that way. And when they had lifted up their eyes and saw no man, say Jesus only. And as they came down from the mountain, Jesus charged them saying, Tell the vision to no man until the Son of Man be risen again from the dead. Now, they do they even know what he means by that? The Son of Man being risen again from the dead? They're still learning themselves. We can read it and we take it out of the context and know, well, we know the rest of the story, so we know what he's talking about. They didn't necessarily know. And I'm sure they got more of a conversation, but we, he, doesn't, he doesn't give us that conversation. But in verse 10, we see, And his disciples asked him, saying, Why then say the scribes that Elias must first come? And Jesus answered and said unto them, Elias truly shall first come and restore all things. But I say unto you that Elias is come already, and they knew him not, but have done unto him whatsoever they listed. Likewise shall also the Son of Man suffer of them. And then the disciples understood that he spake unto them of John the Baptist. So, you know, these these first verses, you know, and over in the side panel on the page, if you're going along with us, I have there, Jesus takes Peter, John, and James, or James and John, up. And we see the same thing in, in Luke. And, but in Luke, that it's slightly different. That they're saying specifically six days here in Matthew. But in Luke it says, and it actually has the word, about eight days. Well, of course, six days is about eight days. But of course, eight days from what? Six days from what? Well, it's, it's six days from this whole giving them the keys to the kingdom. That we see in Matthew 16. That, uh, you know, and I've added a great deal to the side panels in that page so that you can, you can follow along with, you know, and look at the Greek in, in numerous different ways. They have old charts there and everything for those who want to contest what we're saying. 
you know, when he tells happy is Peter. And he, he, he says, blessed is Peter. And, and people have told me, and I, I've had professors tell me that he was consecrating Peter to be the head of the church there. And, and we just point out, but the word there, and we've already done this, we, you know, way back when we were talking about the beat, what they call the beatitudes, blessed are those, blessed are those, blessed. There's a word there that is translated blessed. It's not the normal word for blessed. It isn't, it's okay to translate it blessed. But it really means happy are those. It's not the word for consecrating something. That's a different Greek word entirely. Well, here he's saying happy is Peter. Because he knows something. Not because flesh and blood has revealed it to him. Not because somebody told it to him. Not because he read it in a book. Not because he plucked it from a tree of knowledge. But he received it. Because it was revealed to him in his heart and in his mind by the Father. And because that revelation was in him, he was happy. You should be happy, Simon, because my Father revealed this to you. And that revelation is the rock. It's not Peter. Peter's screwing up all the time. He's he's no rock. They call him Peter from then on. But they call him Peter not because he is right all the time. But And we should not accept him as right all the time because we know he's wrong a lot of the time. But what is right all of the time is the revelation from God. That is the rock. Now that's going to fly in the face of a lot of theologians out there. They're not going to like that. But that is what I see. And I'm sharing with you what I see. And if that's what you see, then we're in accord. At least on that point. Now we can go to the other 999,000 other points that people are confused about. <laughs> Jerome writes, and I'm not a big fan of Jerome, but I look, I listen to Jerome, I read what he says, I even read it in the Latin sometimes, because he wrote in the, in Latin. Because I'm willing to listen, and that's very important, if we're gonna to attend to the weightier matters, we, we need to be willing to listen. Uh, to both sides. Something happened, I guess, last night or yesterday in the news. We'll talk about it in the afternoon show. Somebody is in critical condition. And when you tell people who it is, a lot of people will be happy. But I am sad for those people who are happy. For they are not Christians. Because the happiness they have is fleeting in the face in the face of the wrath of the lamb and what what Jesus is the lamb right and when in the transfiguration the the face of the lamb was as bright as the sun well the sun you know i've i've been out in the sun the sun's hot the sun is fiery you know, but uh, 
you don't want that fire burning you up. But uh, people don't want to see the truth. They are comfortable with the darkness of the lie. So, But anyway, Jerome and the traditions say that the mount that they went up on was Tabor. And there is some evidence to that fact. That traditionally, like I said, that's what a lot of people thought, that it was Mount Tabor. In Second Peter 1.18, he calls the mount holy. He doesn't call it Mount Tabor. And this voice which came from heaven, we heard when we were with him in the holy mount. So he just calls it the holy mount. Uh, that isn't necessarily Tabor. At that time, according to archaeologists, Tabor had a, a fortress on the top. And there was a village there and there were houses and streets and there were people there on the top of Mount Tabor. So that really wasn't, you know, because it, it said at the beginning they, that he went up there to be a part. Well, he wouldn't be a part of there were all these people up there. So it kind of doesn't fit. And this, and the reason I'm kind of showing you is to, you can look, you know, people always say the Bible interprets itself. So, well, no, you interpret the Bible. You read the Bible. <laughs> you pull this little phrase from here and this little phrase from here and you come up with an interpretation. But, uh, ultimately, you need the Holy Spirit to know what the Bible is saying because you need to be inspired too. You need the revelation of God. But we're going to look at the facts right now. We'll be right back. Okay, so welcome back to Keys of the Kingdom. So we're looking at this verses about transfiguration and uh, they talk about, there's a debate as to was it Mount Tabor? Was it uh, Mount Hermon? Which was another mount that was uh, actually near Caesarea Philippi. And uh, and it's mentioned that the name is not mentioned. No one mentions the name. But in Mark 9, verses around 30 up into 40, 42, they, they talk about that they were returning from this transfiguration and the mount that they were on. And they go through Galilee, uh, then came to Capernaum. Well, if you look at maps, we know where these places are. And you say, well, they wouldn't really be coming from Tabor. But Jerome thought they were. Well, Jerome thought a lot of things. <laughs> like I said, I'm not really fond of Jerome. But I, I, I hear what he has to say. And I'll read a lot of the different biblical texts. You know, the Greek texts and the Bishtia and all these different things. But ultimately, I mean, how do you decipher all these things? And I don't really think that the Bible interprets itself. We interpret the Bible based on our knowledge of the Bible, based on our knowledge of history, our, our knowledge of language. You know, if you only read the English, which is fine, it, it will still work. If you only read the English, you don't have to learn Greek. You don't have to learn Hebrew. You certainly don't have to learn Latin in order to read Jerome's translation. But you can. That's all, But that's all over there, tree of knowledge stuff. That's flesh and blood stuff. Ultimately, your source of knowing has to be divine inspiration. Because we can be fooled. 
you know, they they can filter the amount of knowledge that you get. They can emphasize this thing and not emphasize that. They, they can give value to this point, but not value to that point. And if you don't know history, they can get away with it. Because you don't know history, you don't know these things. You know, why Why did he hold up a denarii and say, whose face is on this? Have you read the statutes of Rome to understand that that money actually belonged to Caesar? He loaned it into circulation by building aqueducts or building roads or building a harbor. And when he paid out the money to build that harbor, he did it with those coins that had his face on it. And, and those coins went out into circulation. They paid, you know, stonemasons and they paid guys at rock quarries and, and guys who had uh, donkeys that were bringing food to these guys, building these roads all the way across the desert or the ramparts up to Masada, you know, they had a whole bunch of guys building uh, ramps up to the gates of Masada so that they could bust down, you know, set fire to the gates and bust them down and come in there and kill all those guys who were holed up in Masada. Well, they had to eat. They had to drink water. There was hundreds and hundreds of mules, I say mules, donkeys, going back and forth from wherever they could get water, wherever they could get food, and delivering food and water to the people out there working in the desert. That's why Herod built it out there, because he thought nobody would have the ingenuity to come here and siege this fortress up there on Masada, because it was so far out that they had cisterns up in the fort where they stored water. But... The people, you know, they brought a whole army that's going to need more water and there's no rivers right there. So they had all those guys with those donkeys going back and forth every day. <laughs> they they were getting paid by Roman denarii and with somebody's face on it sometimes. And uh, when they taxed you for using the harbor, using the road... Or if they built a big, like Caesarea, there was a big marketplace. You could bring all your wares to that marketplace and sell them. Well, there was a sales tax in the marketplace. I mean, you could, you had competitive buyers and people coming there. They would want to buy stuff. But every time you sold stuff, the market got a share. It was sales tax. And of course, that, that was money they needed to build the marketplace. To bring in the roads, to bring in the spaces that you could set up your shops. You probably had to rent the spaces to set up your shops. But you could make more money in the marketplace, so they didn't mind paying a little sales tax. Because they were they were paying for the use of the market. Because the sales tax, a use tax, an excise tax. and And so they were setting that up. And, and and you could do that. There were other people who would go and trade outside of the market. They didn't owe any sales tax. But they didn't get a lot of people. They, they had to make individual deals. It was more time consuming. They couldn't just go to one place and sell all their stuff. 
So th- it was a complicated system. And understanding when they, they were holding up the coin and said, whose face is it? Is, well, it's Caesar's. We'll give to Caesar what is Caesar's. What if you had a gold coin that didn't have Caesar's face on it? <laughs> it just said, uh, you know, 10 grams of gold on it. You know, it's a, a weight. You know, this is, this weighs 10 grams. It's, it's not a denomination. You're not saying it's worth $20 or $50 or $100. You're just saying it weighs this much. And, and you can go and throw it on a scale and you can determine that it weighs that much. And of course, you know, you, some people say, well, what does that have to do with the Bible? Well, the Bible tells you that you have to have just weights and measures. And that's, that's why you would do that. You can still do that. But, you know, I mentioned this morning, H.J.R. 192, U.S. citizens can't own the lawful title to gold. They, they can have a legal title to gold now, but if you haven't listened to our programs and our, read our articles on legal title, to know the difference between legal title and lawful title, then you don't know the difference between liberty and freedom and bondage and slavery. <laughs> you don't know the difference. And if you learn the meaning of these words, you can talk about it. But that's not what we're talking about today. We're talking about, is it this Herman, the chief mountain, or was it Tabor? But really what I'm talking about is how you come to these conclusions. You know, because you read Mark 9.30, and you know that they're coming back from the transfiguration by way of Caesarea and Galilee. In Capernaum. And so, you know, well, they wouldn't be coming from Tabor then because Tabor is over there. And if you also know your archaeological record that Tabor had a fortress on it and a city on it at that time. That's not where you go to get isolated to get what the Bible says is a part. They went to a high mountain to be a part. Well, they wouldn't be a part. They'd be right in the middle of a city on the high mountain. Right in the middle of a fortress. So that's probably not it. And and if it was important to know if it was Tabor or Herman, the author would have put it in there. It's not important. Now, there's lots of things that Matthew could have included, but he was inspired to include what he included. So that's what we need to know. And so he includes a thing that Elias was John the Baptist. But we saw Elias and Moses and Jesus talking. And what did they talk about? Well, that's another issue. I don't think it says in this this text right here, but there is references as to what they were talking about, which was talking about his, Jesus going to Jerusalem and being executed. And his departure, etc. And so, but we don't have a record of the exact conversation. But it's not important. If it was important, they'd have put it in. And when they were come to the multitude, in verse 14, there came to him a certain man, kneeling down to him and saying, Lord, so he's addressing him, Lord, have mercy on my son. For he is a lunatic. And sore vexed. There's that word sore vexed. 
again. For oft times he falleth into the fire, and oft into the water. So something's causing him to be crazy. And he, we see this word lunatic. We, I can put that in. So you, you can always look these things up on your own, but sometimes I'll put them in so that you can get a feel for what it is. And, and in verse 16 he says, And I brought him to thy disciples, and they could not cure him. So because we know the disciples had gone out and cured people. They were given the power to cure people. But evidently they couldn't cure everybody because they couldn't cure this guy. So this is another little piece of the puzzle. And Jesus answered and said, O faithless and perverse generation, how long shall I be with you? How long shall I suffer you? Bring him hither to me. How long will I have to be patient with you? Now, you can read that with all kinds of different inflections. And of course, I just added some inflection there. That may not be the best inflection. That may not be accurate. But he did use the word perverse generation. And he he did use the word where he says, Oh, faithless. Which is, you know, it's, it's basically the word pistos with a negative. You know, Oh, generation without faith. And, and, and that word appears, you know, over 20 times in the Bible. And it's translated a number. You know, it could be an unbeliever. Uh, someone who is unbelieving. That believeth not, at least believeth not enough. Uh, they actually even translated infidel a couple of times. So, so I mean, like he's talking about his apostles being infidels. But when you see the word infidel, that's somebody who doesn't really believe. They're not really doing it the way Christ said to do it. They don't really understand the full gospel. They have faith in some of it, but not the whole thing. So they're absent some faith. And so they're unable to cure that person. Well, there's not very many people that can lay hands on somebody and cure them today. Uh, there are some frauds out there that may make you think that that's what they're doing. But there's not a lot of people doing it. I believe it is done. But, you know, we also have a lot more atheists, a lot more people believing in a Jesus that is not the real Jesus, believing in a Christ that is not the real Christ. And we're going to see some evidence of how you know if a church or minister or a priest, or even a rabbi, is really teaching about the God that created heaven and earth. Or if they're missing a little bit of faith themselves and teaching something less. And that's that's important for each of us to learn. But not just by flesh and blood physical lessons. Really what you're going to need to know is the keys to the kingdom in order to have the power given to you by God to discern what is true and what is not true. It isn't just knowledge. It isn't just information. It isn't just the Bible. Yeah, I have a picture on the page and it says underneath, it's supposedly a picture of Matthew who's supposedly an angel whispering in his ear, inspiring him. 
And, you know, it's an artist's rendition. I don't expect any of this to be. I mean, he's writing a book that they wouldn't even have invented yet. He would be writing on paper or scrolls, but not in a bound book. But anyway, uh, it says, Must you be inspired as Matthew to understand the gospel of the kingdom? Well, yes. To really understand it. To really know it. To really have faith in it. You need the inspiration of God. And see, that's what Simon should be happy about. As he was given that faith. To know. Not by flesh and blood. But by the Holy Spirit. Because that's really going to fill in the gaps. That are going to be there. If you just look at the text. Because we know the text doesn't tell us every single thing. It leaves stuff out. Some of those things are not important. Enough to put in the text. They may be important to you later on. If somebody wants you to donate money to build a tabernacle at Tabor. Well now you've got a pretty good idea that. I'm not donating money to build a tabernacle on Tabor. Because I don't think it was on Tabor. Besides, evidently, Jesus didn't think it was a good idea either. Well, maybe we should go over to Mount Hermon and build a temple. Or a tabernacle. Well, you know, people are talking about building a tabernacle in Jerusalem now. And starting the sacrifice. But they don't even know what the sacrifice was all about. They they have a heavy progressive income tax in the nation of Israel. They were not supposed to have that. They have a draft for their army. When David started to do that, it was bad. They weren't supposed to do that. Now, they can do it. But it's not according to the what Moses was telling them. It's not according to what David was saying. It's not according to what the scriptures of the Old Testament tell us that we should be doing. But you can have a king if you want. But if you're going to have a king, you know, Scripture tells us to write down in your constitution that he can't return you to the bondage of Egypt. What's the bondage of Egypt? Well, I tell you over in the side panel, the bondage of Egypt is when the people were under tribute. That 20% of their labor belonged to the government. By their consent, they agreed to it. They didn't have any food. They didn't have any bread. They didn't have enough grain to eat. They'd sold everything they had. He says, well, I'll tell you what, I'll feed you anyway. But from now on, you owe me 20% of your labor. That's the bondage of Egypt. Well, Deuteronomy tells us never to go back to the bondage of Egypt. We're told that actually in numerous places not to do that. But here they are. We're going to see here that they were back in the bondage of Egypt. And they were going back in the bondage of Egypt. Several reasons, but there's a primary reason factor here, element we call it elements of the world there's articles we have elements of the world because that's the word we see translated in the King James but one of them is the Corbin of the Pharisees the Corbin of the Pharisees was their social welfare system and you had to pay into it by law if you had consented to become a member of the, the temple built by Herod or either temple built by Herod, because it could be the temple in Jerusalem or the temple in Roma. You, you had the same kind of system. Different statues, different symbols, same kind of system. And you had to pay in. But that was still the Corbin of the temple of Roma. 
even if you went over to Rome, they had a similar system set up. But the interesting thing, and we've pointed it out before, is that Augustus Caesar sent free bread to be distributed to the citizens of Judea from Rome to support their social welfare system in Judea for Jews. And if if the giveaway day fell on a Jewish holiday, Jews could come on another day and get their free bread. And many of them did. But of course, that was the bread that makes the word of God to none effect. That, because it was a system. I mean, how did Augustus Caesar have the free bread to give to people in Judea? Well, he had to kill a lot of Gauls to do that. <laughs> and uh, he had to kill a lot of his enemy. Vanquished them in the Civil War and confiscated their lands and confiscated their properties. And so he had extra stuff to give you. We'll see later on, Constantine does the same thing. But that's not according to Christ. That's according to the guys like Herod and the Corbin of the Pharisees, which makes the word of God to none effect. And it's also like the Corbin of FDR. That makes the word of God to none effect. Now, I'm not saying get rid of the system. I'm saying repent and seek the kingdom of God and his righteousness, which is a system that does not operate by force. John the Baptist didn't operate by force. He said, if you have extra, share with those that don't have enough. Do it with your garments, with your food, with your accommodations. There's your alternative to Social Security and the welfare of the state, which Proverbs tells you the dainties of the state make the word of God to none effect. They tell you that it's a snare and a trap. David tells you it's a snare. What should have been for your welfare is a snare. Paul quotes David. That's all in the Bible. That's all in the same Bible you say interprets itself. But to many of you, you've never even heard this. And many of you have heard it. No, many who have never heard it. Which is why it's important to share the keys of the kingdom with other people. So they can hear it. Because the unrighteous mammon, we have articles on mammon and the unrighteous mammon and the wages of unrighteousness, the rewards of unrighteousness. These are all phrases in the Bible. If you don't know what they're talking about, the the wages of unrighteousness are the wages you get because somebody else is charging your neighbor tribute. Which is, by essence... If somebody is forcing your neighbor to contribute to your welfare and you like that idea, that's a covetous practice. And Colossians tells us that covetousness is idolatry. So when you go to get those benefits at those temples, see, we were talking about temples, which are government buildings providing the services of the government, They're either doing it through faith, hope, and charity like the church is supposed to do or they're doing it through force and fear and fealty which is a snare and making you subject to the bondage of Egypt again. And that's what's taken place that everybody has gone back into the bondage of Egypt. So anyway, let's go back to that guy when he was talking about 
Jesus was talking about, oh, faithless, because they weren't able to cast out the demon, the devil, that was in this individual that was causing him to do these lunatic things, these crazy things. And Jesus rebuked the devil. And he departed out of him. And the child was cured from that very hour. Then came the disciples to Jesus apart. This again, separately. Not in front of everybody else, but we're hearing about it through Matthew. And said, why could not we cast him out? And Jesus said unto him, because of your unbelief. For verily I say unto you, if ye have faith as a grain of mustard seed. I mean, real faith. This faith that this pistos in the Greek. That comes from what? The tree of knowledge? Convinced of your own arguments? From flesh and blood? Or the faith that is given you by the Holy Spirit, by the revelation of God? The real Holy Spirit. Remember, there's a lot of fake Holy Spirits out there. They're not really holy. <laughs> the, the holy means separate. Separate from what? Separate from the ways of the world. But if you have that faith that is given to us by God, this grain of mustard seed, ye shall say unto the mountains, Remove hence to yonder place, and it shall remove, and nothing shall be impossible unto you. I need to move a mountain. But I need two or more people also wanting that mountain to be moved. (laughs) So, if we all pray together that the mountain will be moved, maybe I'll have to do less manual labor in moving the mountain. (laughs) So anyway, it'll be up to you. Are you going to pray with us? Are you going to come into accord with what we're telling you that this scripture is telling you? I mean, I'm just reading the scripture here. Now, I'm showing you the words out of standard concordances, standard Greek dictionaries, that are even the ones tied to the Bible. Occasionally, if I, I pull something from somewhere else, you know, like Aristotle referred to this word, or, and Socrates used this this way, or, or some poet used it this way, and we find out they're all using it the same way for a hundred years before it was put in the Bible to three hundred years after it was put in the Bible, then it probably means what those guys say it means. And the truth is, the concordance actually says it means the same thing. And of course, I'm talking about the word exousia, which we find in Romans 13. But anyway, how be it, this kind goeth not out, but by prayer and fasting. And that's what we need to understand what prayer and fasting mean. But we'll have to talk about that when we come back to Keys of the Kingdom after another brief break. Well, welcome back to Keys of the Kingdom. We just read in verse 21 in this chapter 17. Howbeit this kind goeth not out, but by prayer and fasting. That's not in every Bible. You won't find that verse in every Bible. It is actually deleted in a number because somebody has a copy of an older Greek text that did not include this verse. And I've talked about this before, is that you'll find certain verses missing in certain uh 
New Testament translations. And it's because they're using, there's lots of different ancient texts out there. And they're using one that people will say, based on the copy that we actually have, that this is an older text because the copy is from an earlier time. But then they say, well, that's because people had a tendency to add text. Some people will say that. I don't say that. That they added a text in later copies. But the fact is, is they're all copies. And we know that some of the texts that are deleted in some of these older copies of the Testaments are mentioned by writers that go back to even an earlier date. So they saw those texts that are missing in these different chapters. They saw them, at least some of them, we know they saw them because they're making reference to them. So in their earliest copies that predate the oldest copies we now have, some of these texts were definitely there because people were talking about them and writing about them. So the fact that some copies don't have them, I I find that, uh, that that does not make those earlier copies more credible. But we shouldn't worry about that too much. It's important to know. But if we're reading the Scripture with the Holy Spirit we should come to the conclusion that prayer and fasting is important. And there's plenty of other places in the text that will tell us that prayer and fasting is important. I talked to somebody just the other day that had somebody close to them who their situation improved vastly from what it was a number of years ago. Their whole life was turned around. And I pointed out, to I was led to point out to them that this is because of, to, to some degree, not taking any credit away from the individual. I give all credit to God. The credit for what I do, for what everybody else does. But yet we have this relationship with God where God, as we draw near God, we're allowed to be given power over those things that would want to have power over us. Because... If we're serving the God of creation, we are serving that which has power over everything. Whatever that God of creation is. I and mean, we can call him by names. We can spell out names and say, oh, he has this name and he has that name. And all kinds of religions are big on that. But that God is not subject to our terminology. He's not subject to our alphabet. He's not subject to our opinion. By the nature of God, he is the unmoved mover. He, he, he is not moved by our opinion. He's not even moved by our prayer. We ask for something. We can't move him because we, we pray really, 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 really hard. We can't move him. But as we move closer to the light, his presence can have an effect on our prayer. That's where the power comes from. It doesn't come from us. If if we think the power comes from us, we probably think our faith comes from us, from our knowledge, from our information, from flesh and blood, because we're flesh and blood. 
But the power doesn't come from that. It comes from another source. And if you tap into that source, there is light. <laughs> and as you approach that light, if you draw near that light, and of course that's what he told us in 16 with the keys of the kingdom, how to draw near that light. With the keys, which are what you bind on earth is bound in heaven, what you loose on earth is loosed in heaven. How you conduct yourself on this realm will have an effect as it won't change heaven, but it will change your relationship to it. It will draw you near that source of light, that source of power, that source of healing. But if you hate the light, if you want to dwell in darkness, and you want a Corbin that makes the word of God to none effect, you will go farther and farther away from the source of creation and your prayers will have less effect. So what does fasting have to do? Prayer is your expression of what you, you know, I want this mountain to move. <laughs> I want these things to change. Now, if you're praying for a new car all the time, you know, or fancy your car or whatever, that's probably not a good prayer. But anyway... That's where fasting comes in. Fasting from your desires. What you want. Because what who are we supposed to pray in the name of? We're supposed to pray in the name of the Father. And the, and the Son. And the Holy Spirit. That is also called the Comforter. That is sent to us by way of the Father and the Son. Exactly. Now, I'm throwing those, you know, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, you know, which people create all kinds of doctrine about Trinity. Trinity's not in the Bible. The word Trinity's not in the Bible. But definitely the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit are mentioned. And those are three things. And they seem to be in one accord. They seem to be of one source. But it's, you know, I don't want to create doctrine about it. I don't want to create doctrine about prayer and fasting. But I know from these words that prayer and fasting is important, but I will not understand how they're important until I tap, tap into that faith that is given to us by the Holy Spirit through the Father and the Son. So, I'm using these finite words to try to describe an infinite source of creation. You know, people say, well, I don't believe in creation and all this stuff. Well, they, they believe in the Big Bang where out of nothing, everything came. So, I guess when they die, they will go back to nothing. <laughs> we believe that there was something, somewhere, but not a thing, something outside of things, outside of time, that affected, you know, I used to always say when they first started talking about the Big Bang, I can remember when they first started talking about the Big Bang. <laughs> and uh, I said, who lit the fuse? Being a young kid and knowing about firecrackers, if you're going to have a Big Bang, somebody's got to light the fuse. There has to be a cause and effect. <laughs> I thought it was obvious. So, what they're talking about is how the universe works. How the universe of things works in conjunction with the universe of the Spirit. And together, 
you would have the universal kingdom of God. And it would operate according to those two things, spirit and, and the physical laws of nature, which come from the spirit. And those two will come into accord. They're going to come into accord all the time. And sometimes when they come into accord, we call it the wrath of God. But it's just the consequences of going against the nature of God. So anyway, let's get into a couple more of these verses here. We only have a few more to go. Verse 22. And while they abode in Galilee, because we knew they were going to Galilee, Jesus said unto them, The Son of Man shall be betrayed into the hands of men. And they shall kill him. And the third day he shall be raised again. And they were exceeding sorry. There's that word sorry again. Or sore. Sorry. Um, sorrowful. It's actually uh, lupeo. And, and it's a little bit different here in this te- text. Uh, you, there's lupe and lupeo. And... Uh, you know, you could say make sad, uh, offend. It could actually mean offend, cause grief, cause a heaviness of their heart. So they were they were kind of worried about this, and this is going to affect what Peter says at times. But we're going to verse 24 through 27 because this is a section where they talk about the temple tax. And, and Matthew's this almost seems like Matthew's jumping around here, but it's it's not. The, the the fact that he's going to Jerusalem, he's going to be put to death, he's going to be betrayed by men, and the next thing they're talking about is tribute, it's because, as you'll see when we talk about the mammon and the unrighteous mammon, and if there's an unrighteous mammon, there must be a righteous mammon. So what is the righteous mammon? Well, that's the treasure of the kingdom. Uh, and the unrighteous mammon is the treasure of the world. And the world is the constitutional order and system of government that puts all your gold in their vault <laughs> and spends it on your behalf. <laughs> and thieves and robbers break in and they do all kinds of things to so that you end up with the coins in your pocket. When I was a kid, the coin in my pocket, when there was a dime in my pocket, it was I could two dimes I could go buy a gallon of gas. When I was a kid, actually, I, I I literally would pull up with my motorcycle, show you how old I am, pull up with my motorcycle, give the guy a quarter and say, fill it up and get change back. <laughs> but it was a silver quarter. Uh, there's, they've, in America, we still have a little tiny bit of silver in our coins. In Israel, they have no silver in their coins. They don't have clad coins like we have here. And that's because they don't have the Constitution we have here. But, of course, I've written whole books on the Constitution. And you might want to go read Contracts, Covenants, and Constitutions to understand exactly where the Constitution sits in the scheme of history, in the scheme of where we're going, in the scheme of our future. And in the scheme that Matthew is laying out before us. And they're all free online. So you can go read them online. Feel free to download them. Read them on your phone. And, and we have studies, recordings that go through, take you through them step by step. 
It's all free. Because it's freely given to me, i got to freely give it to you. But at the temple, things were not given for free. (laughs) Verse 24, And when they were come to Capernaum, they that received tribute, money, came to Peter and said, Doth not your master pay tribute? So this is in, in verse 24. And they're talking about, you know, the guy who receives tribute. So, so what word is that that he uses there for received tribute? Labano is defined take. <laughs> it says it's translated receive 133 times, but the definition right off from the beginning means to take. This is the guy who takes the tribute. And of course we know if we go back to read 1 Samuel 8 that if you pick a king to rule over you, to exercise authority one over the other, and of course they were just picking the commander in chief of the military at first but then eventually became the king that he will take and take and take and take and take. And today they're taking and taking and taking and taking and they're actually borrowing against the future of your children, cursing your children and they're giving it to other people. <laughs> Which is foreign aid. Uh, but of course there's foreign aid talked about in the Bible. In the Old Testament. Israel was supposed to get foreign aid. You know what they called it? Yeah. The sacrifice of the red heifer. That was foreign aid. But it was a free will sacrifice. of so the people that knew it was going to foreign aid. And they went and gave it anyway. Didn't have anything to do with the cow. It didn't have anything to do with the color red. It didn't have anything with burning up cow hair and bones and ashes. It had to do with foreign aid. Don't believe me? Go read an article at Preparing You on the Red Heifer. But anyway, if you don't know that, you're going to be seduced into all kinds of things that you're going to think, that oh, we need to find a perfectly red heifer and go kill it in Jerusalem and then everything will work out. Wrong temple, wrong sacrifice, wrong way, not the straight way of Christ. But he's going to talk to you about the straight way here. They that received tribute money, took tribute money, came to Peter and said, Does not your master pay tribute? At preparing you, there's a link to an article, Pay Tribute. We explain this whole thing. But we're going to go through it briefly here so that you we get through Matthew. So in 25 he says, He saith, Yes, And when he was come into the house, Jesus prevented him, saying, What thinkest thou, Simon? Didn't call him Peter then. (laughs) Whom do the kings of the earth take custom or tribute? The word tribute there is kinsos, which has to do with the tax. Do they take it of their own children or of strangers? He's asking about the kings. Take it of the other kings, their their, their princes, their children. Because there are kings in the world. Where did they get their authority? Where did David get his authority? Where did Saul get his authority? Where did uh, Rehoboam get his authority? He got it from the people, but he got it through a system of right reason. 
They agreed to it. They consented. We have to make our yeses, yes, our noes. Of course, we're told not to make covenants, contracts and constitutions with men who can exercise authority. We're warned against that. But if you want one, you can do it. But you're going to suffer the consequences. And, of course, in First Samuel 8, it tells you the consequences are. He's going to take and take and take and take and take and take. And when you cry out, I'm not even going to hear you. When you cry out, I'm not going to hear you. So how do we get God to hear us? Well, it goes back to that prayer and fasting. And it goes back to those keys of the kingdom. But in verse 26, Peter answers. Peter saith unto him, Of strangers, Jesus saith unto him, Then are the children free? They don't have to pay? Because Peter just said that his master does pay. And Jesus is saying, ah, no, no, because Jesus is a king. He is the Christ. He is the anointed. He doesn't know any tribute. He has no contract with the world of Caesar, nor with the world of Pontius Pilate, because his kingdom was not of the world of Pontius Pilate, which we'll get into later and explain to you what word they use there. Verse 27, though, he says, Notwithstanding, lest we should offend them, go thou to the sea and cast and hook and take up the fish that first cometh up. And when thou hast opened his mouth, thou shalt find a piece of money. That take and give unto them for me and thee. Because Jesus didn't say I pay the tribute. Peter did. He didn't say take two pieces of money. It seems to say a piece of money. We can look at the Greek and and, and find out if this is really as accurate a translation. But it sounds like he's got one piece of money. And you go give it for both of us. Didn't say to go get a bunch for all the other apostles. (laughs) Or for everybody else. And he didn't even say get two pieces. He just says, give, get a piece of money and take it and give unto them for me and thee. Now we can maybe find other verses that make this a little bit different. But it sounds to me like Jesus didn't know it. And of course, like I said, when we get into Pontius Pilate and the trial they attempt to have and Pontius Pilate you know if you know what he's doing when he's washing his hands he's saying I'm not trying this matter Rome did not try Jesus Christ they did not find him guilty they found him innocent they found him the king of Judea and wrote a royal proclamation pronouncing that he was the king of Judea and they didn't like that. But he stuck by his word. But when Jesus said, my kingdom's not of this world, he's talking about the court. He says, you ain't got no jurisdiction. Unfortunately, the kings of the earth do have jurisdiction over many people today. And they have jurisdiction over many people today because the people have taken the bait. They have taken the dainties of men who exercise authority one over the other. They have consented to those benefits. And we know, according to 
Psalms, according to Proverbs, according to the Ten Commandments, thou shalt not covet thy neighbor's goods. Uh, thou shalt make no covenants with the ruling judges, Elohim, being ruling judges. That's what it means. That's in the concordance. I didn't make that definition up. Elohim means ruling judge. Now, there is a ruling judge of the universe that is outside of all this. And you can draw near him, connect with him, tap into his light, tap into his power by approaching him. But approaching him, you have to come into the light. When you come into the light, it's a little bright. It may hurt a little bit. It's not always comfortable to find out many of the things that you believe just ain't so. It's not just that they're not true from a certain point of view. They just ain't so. And so you have to let go of the things that you have accepted as true that just ain't so. But I would not Make you do that. I can't make you do that. It's not in my power to make you do that. But I would not even suggest you do that without giving you what is so. And what is so is that the keys to the kingdom is what you bind on earth is bound in heaven. What you loose on earth is loosed in heaven. How do you loose things? When you're angry at somebody, you're bound to that person by your anger. When you're covetous of what is that person's and send men to that man's house to take away from him, to take, to receive of him. You know, that these are the ones who receive the tribute. No, the word is take it. These are the ones who take it. And if you want to receive of those who take, then you want to take from your neighbor. If you want to take from your neighbor so that you can have stuff for free, you are coveting your neighbor's goods. And according to Colossians, you're an idolater. Because covetousness is idolatry. It makes the rewards that you receive from this entrusted wealth, this mammon of the treasury, it makes them unrighteous. Because you obtain them through covetousness. Through exercising authority one over the other. Through men who exercise authority one over the other. Contrary to what Christ says. You're not to be that way. But we are that way. And it's not the way of Christ. And we need to repent of that way. And go the other way. Because the way of the unrighteous mammon will fail. Now, in the meantime, you may have to pay into the unrighteous mammon. Pay what you owe Caesar. Give him, give him the, the, the notes that have his picture on it. <laughs> or the dead Caesars that have gone before him. Dead rulers that have gone before him. Now, I'm not saying anything bad about George Washington or anything. I'm just saying it's not just weights and measures. You're back in the bondage of Egypt. You're, you're now, uh, going the way of unrighteousness and the rewards they offer you are the rewards of unrighteousness and you may still have to pay into it because you still have to pay your tally of bricks but Jesus didn't say if the unrighteous mammon fails he says when it fails 
you'll be suitable for more righteous habitations. How do you become suitable for more righteous habitations? Prayer and fasting is the start. Forgiveness is the start. We'll talk more about this this afternoon. Until then, peace on your house and may God be with you. God bless. You have been listening to The Keys of the Kingdom with Brother Gregory of His Holy Church. For more information on the educational ministry provided by His Holy Church and Brother Gregory, including services, counseling, lectures, books, and other audio materials, please write to His Church at Summer Lake, Box 10, Summer Lake, Oregon, 97640. You can also find us on the web at www.hisholychurch.net.